week on Perspective. Uprising, the future of Sudan. Day after day, week after week, they have come by the thousands, filling the streets of the Sudanese capital Khartoum and beyond. A protest sparked by economic hardship and a tripling in the price of bread has burgeoned into full-fledged revolution. The ouster and imprisonment of dictator President Omar al-Bashir, a military takeover and uncertain negotiations towards civilian rule. Yet again this week, the protests swelled, thousands more swarming into the capital from the countryside to bolster demands for democratic reform. <laughs> Joining them, rank-and-file members of the military, judges, doctors, teachers, lawyers, engineers, determined to keep up the pressure for a swift transition to democracy. Al-Bashir came to power in a military coup 30 years ago and ruled with an iron fist. Political opponents faced torture and death. His country has fought two civil wars. For the conflict in Darfur, Bashir has been indicted by the International Criminal Court on charges of genocide and crimes against humanity. In the South, war ended with the secession of South Sudan in 2011. The economy of Sudan is in ruins. Inflation is rampant. Many cannot afford food or medicine. Bashir withstood uprisings before, but this time his own henchmen turned against him. On the program this week, we'll speak to one of the organizers of the protests. We'll also assess the broader implications and what may lie ahead. But we begin on the ground in Khartoum with Hala Al-Karib, a women's rights activist. She is the regional director for the Strategic Initiative for Women in the Horn of Africa. These protests have been going on for so long now. How would you describe the atmosphere in Khartoum? It's very, very intense, Alison. Um, I mean, um, the number of protesters are increasing every day. The protest is becoming more and more inclusive of all, um, you know, people from all walks of lives. Um, um, the, you know, the speed where people are really getting organized and trying to join in, and um, the willingness and the interest of Sudanese people to amplify their voices and to make their voices heard after 30 years of, of, of repressions and, you know, and of silence. It's, it's just so, so amazing. But it's also intense and, um, you know, and it's, uh, uh, it's very, very important, you know, for, for the for Sudan Military Council, for the international community, and for all actors of Sudan, you know, to hear the demands of, of Sudanese people and to take it seriously. Do you know, there was a time when people would be very afraid of marching in the streets. Is there fear still? No, not anymore. Not anymore. You know, uh, people are extremely empowered. It's just the transformation is so amazing. Such a short time. And people are regaining their power every single day. You know, um, the protesters are occupying about four main streets in, um, in central Khartoum. And um, as I said, the numbers are increasing. Uh, all forms of associations, uh, you know, professional associations, student associations, victims of war, uh, you know, trade unions. Uh, it's just so amazing. So, no, there is no fear, but there is worries. 
definitely people are worried. They are worried about the military council. They are worried about the lack of collaboration from the military council. And they are worried also about the position of the international community. I want to ask you a bit more of that. When you talk about the international community, what do you worry about? I worry about the fact that they assume that Sudanese people should accept, you know, and compromise with uh, the NCB uh, regime, you know. Um, and, and the problem with that regime, it's a militant Islamist regime. Sudanese people, they realized, they understood that this regime should actually leave you know, uh, completely leave to allow Sudan to build a democratic and civil state. You know, um, it's uh, it's not a typical regime that can compromise, you know, or be part of any democratic forces. You know, the the uh, the NCB and 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 the, the what's called the Salvation Regime or, or or whatever. You know, they have a very clear ideology. They are militant Islamists. They are extremely disregarding of others. They don't believe in democracy. They don't believe in sharing power. And this is what we know as Sudanese and what we have experienced for the past 30 years. The problem is, over the past 30 years, this regime has developed connection and affiliation to, to, uh, to the international community. And apparently, they can, most of the interna many international actors, they don't see you know, um, that uh, that side of it, that this regime cannot be part of of a democratic um, structure or democratic government. And, and, and this is the challenge, I think, you know, that we are, you know, we are facing with the international community, you know. Um, um, 30 years, uh, uh, they have been working with this regime. The regime has been very good acting as a proxy you know, on several issues like migrations, like, you know, counter to terror. But at the same time, they are maintaining their grip, you know, uh, a very strong grip on the country. And they play this dual game, you know, of uh, sustaining their militants ideology and then uh, uh, satisfy um, the international actor. Yeah. Realistically, I know you've been an activist and a women's rights activist for a long time, but realistically, given how entrenched the regime is within the power structures in Sudan, do you think you can achieve what you, what you want, what you've exp expressed here? I mean, as, as, as women, we have been fighting, you know, um, and I think, you know, if, if any group that's actually contributed uh, contributed to the, uh, you know, to the defeat of this regime. I, I would say women, they played an instrumental role. Um, the militant Islamists of Sudan, they have used women, you know, uh, sort of to control and to manipulate society. And um, Sudanese women, they rejected that. They rejected that conspiracy from day one, and they fought against it. And, and I think, you know, every day we are gaining grounds. We don't think that will be the end of it. Um, even with uh, a democratic or civil government on the way, we think the battle is still ahead. But I think, you know, there is definitely a very deep transformation. And I don't think women are going to turn back. I thank you very much for your insight. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
1989, Colonel Omar al-Bashir came to power in a military coup. He suspended all political parties, trade unions, and non-religious institutions and introduced Sharia law at the national level. In 1993, he appointed himself President of Sudan. The civil war that began in 1983 against the Sudan People's Liberation Army continued under al-Bashir's regime. Child soldiers were used by both sides. The country experienced famine and drought during the conflict, and 600,000 people died. In 2003, war broke out in the Darfur region over the government's treatment of the non-Arab population. By 2007, between 300 and 400,000 people were dead and 2.4 million people displaced. Al-Bashir is accused of genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity in Darfur by the International Criminal Court. A joint UN and African Union peacekeeping mission was deployed to the region, where it remains. In 2005, a peace agreement was signed by the Sudanese government and the Sudan People's Liberation Army. In 2011, the southern region held an independence referendum which led to the creation of South Sudan. A broader perspective now on what's at play in Sudan. Eric Reeves is a noted researcher who has written extensively about the country. He's also a senior fellow at Harvard University's Francois Xavier Center for Health and Human Rights. It's been noted by many that the protests that we're seeing now in the streets of Khartoum and in other parts of Sudan as well um, have been going on for some time. And some of us even suggested that, in fact, this is a movement that's been in the making for a long time. Why do you think this is happening now? Now is a, um, a peculiar way to refer to time in Sudan. Uh, the regime has been in power for 30 years. The uprising began over four months ago, and it's been less than two weeks and Omar al-Bashir has been deposed and his replacement has been reposed, deposed. What we're seeing now, now, is the interaction of a series of complexly moving parts. You have the uprising, which is remarkable. It's millions of people across Sudan, cutting across uh, ethnic, uh, professional, class, social lines. You have the military council, led by two men with a tremendous amount of Sudanese blood on their hands, as well as Yemeni blood. You have the regional and international communities, the African Union, some important states like Egypt, Chad, and Uganda. And finally, you have, and this has not been nearly reported enough, a deep state that is the creation of 30 years of rule by al-Bashir. By that I mean the people who've been in, put in place, whether in the realms of finance, in the militia forces, in a whole host of areas, that deep state still exists. And that's what Sudanese, whom I talk to, fear most. So when you look at those complex moving parts then, is it possible to say, where power actually lies, given that we are seeing some kind of shift taking place? We are seeing a, a shift taking place. In part, it's uh, one of those moving parts I spoke about. The EU, the Troika, plus Canada, the Troika being the UK, uh, the US, and Norway, along with um, the EU and the African Union have all pushed hard for civilian rule. 
Now, the African Union has backed down from its two-week deadline to give the military junta three months to effect a transition to civilian power. That's an ominous sign. On the other hand, I think the United States and Europe are becoming much stronger in insisting on civilian rule. But given how long, you talk about the deep state and how long the military has been in power, is it realistic to expect that the military would be willing to cede power in Sudan? That's the big question, the really big question. People like the head of the council, um, uh, General uh, Byrne, the deputy head of the council, uh, Lieutenant General uh, uh, Hemeti, as he's known, head of the Rapid Support Forces. Hemeti, in particular, uh, is responsible for the actions of the Rapid Support Forces militia in Darfur from 2013 to the present. That's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of lives lost and displaced. He's responsible. He knows that if the council dissolves or loses its power, he loses the protection he has as vice chair of that council. And the same is true, actually, of uh, General Byrne, the head of the council. So they've got a lot of incentive to hold on to power. On the other hand, this movement keeps growing. I watch Sudanese social media day in, day day out, hours a day, and uh, there is simply no sign of back down. These people know that this is their one great chance to throw off military rule. If they lose on this occasion, they may have lost their opportunity for a lifetime. Uh, and that's very dispiriting for the 65% plus Sudanese who are under the age of 30. At the same time, you noted a moment ago that the, the protesters and, and presumably those who support them come from many different parts of Sudanese society, and that there have always been, and perhaps exacerbated by Bashir's rule, divisions within that society. As they are trying to negotiate now, what's the risk that the divisions, in fact, uh, grow deeper, that the, the divisions reappear? That's an excellent question, and you're certainly right historically. Bashir was expert at uh, divide and conquer rule, and has been from the very beginning. What has struck me watching this uprising since it began on December 19th daily is how unified uh, the people are. Just look at the consistency of nonviolence. It's extraordinary that so many hundreds of thousands of people in a country as large as Sudan have remained nonviolent, have remained united in their insistence on peace, freedom, and justice. Those three words appear in every statement by every group. Uh, certainly, uh, the forces um, uh, for freedom and change, the, the broadest umbrella group, uh, consistently echoes that, as does the Sudanese Professionals Association, which has been spearheading the uh, uprising from the beginning and with remarkable organizational skill and with remarkable ability to cut across the divisions that have uh, made Sudan into the country that is so easily ruled by somebody who's a master at divide and conquer. I also want to ask you about some of the other regional influences at play here, because Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have pledged something like $3 billion in financial assistance to the military, uh, military council. Some have suggested this is basically their attempt to suppress democracy. How influential do you think those countries might be? 
very influential. And I would put Egypt in the same category, although Egypt obviously doesn't have the wherewithal to give billions of dollars. Uh, but Egypt is uh, the country that led the African Union to defer transition from two weeks to three months. Uh, Saudi Arabia counts and has counted on Sudan to assist its grim war in Yemen, where both Hameti and Berm were uh, in service with child soldiers, by the way. And the United Arab Emirates is siding here with um, Saudi Arabia, as opposed to um, Qatar and Turkey, which are now at odds with Khartoum. But the basic problem, and this also does not receive enough attention, the basic problem is that the Sudanese con economy has collapsed. It's not just collapsing, it has collapsed. Whether we're looking at the agricultural sector, whether we're looking at the banking sector, whether we're looking at hyperinflation over 100%, the inability to import critical goods, food, medicines, refined petroleum products, this has brought the economy essentially to a standstill. And $3 billion doesn't begin to touch what the country needs to begin the process of economic rehabilitation. What are you watching for now in the next while? Uh, I'm watching to see that if the um, dialogue, as it's been called, between the civilian forces and the military council continue with product productivity. Um, and I think we can listen very closely to what the, leader, the civilian leadership is saying to get a really good sense of what they're finding acceptable and what not. For example, just today, three Islamist generals were forced to resign from the military council. Uh, the Islamist movement experiment in Sudan may be over, uh, and this may be one concession to that. So I would look to see a, a continuity of um, uh, dialogue, interim concessions by the military council, and clear benchmarks. That's what's missing. That's what the Troika, the EU, Canada, and the US need to lay down. Really clear benchmarks that the regime must abide by so that we get to the end of two months and find a whole series of benchmarks, either met or not met. Um, but there are a lot of reasons to think it could go either way. Mr. Reeves, I thank you very much for your expertise. Thank you. One of the key groups organizing the protests and pushing for transition to civilian rule and democracy is the Sudanese Professionals Association, an alliance of doctors, teachers, lawyers, journalists, and others. Nuha Zain is a spokesperson for the Sudanese Professionals Association. The military has said recently that they want to maintain sovereign powers. For your organization, what does that mean? Uh, actually, uh, the sovereign council that we plan for is a representing of all the forces that participated in this revolution. So the plan or the, the skeleton for our civilian transitional government is this sovereign council, uh, council for minister and legislative uh, council as well. So this is the three structures for the new civilian transitional government. This is what we argue now with the military council, who, who seems that like retreated about uh, providing the sovereign council to the people right now. 
So, so what should we make of, of the military stand at this point? Do you think the military is actually going to step aside? Um, this is, yeah, this is a good question. In the beginning, to be, um, to give it, give it to you as a total information, uh, the April 6th was really a turning point uh, for this revolution, correct? Because people, through the, the declaration of uh, freedom and changing forces, they uh, provided a mandate to the military forces to take the power from al-Bashir and his regime and to hand over this government or this authority to the uh, civilian transitional uh, government. This is what the plan. But since the April 12th, uh, uh, the plans are changed. It seems like uh, the military uh, councils retreated about these promises and he even started to give and apply different uh, secondary or we can say like minor uh, demands that people were asking for, but not the real demands or not the true or the, the fairest ranked demands that we are uh, asking for. So it seems like you are correct, yes. We don't, uh, we don't have fully, uh, full trust on the military accounts right now that to hand over this power to a civilian transitional government. People have been protesting for months now. Um, and Obviously, you know, al-Bashir is gone, but at the same time, as you point out, you have yet to achieve what you want to achieve. What more can you do? As we did, as we did since uh, uh, December uh, 13th, the public pressure, continue our uh, peaceful uh, protesting, uh, the sitting, the full uh, striking, the disobedience. We have a lot of, of uh, peaceful mechanisms that we can uh, apply right now. And we're still in this sitting since, as I told you, in April 6th, and we will continue this public uh, pressure uh, until the military uh, council accepts this handing over the power to a civilian transitional government. So this is what we, our plan. At the same time, this is one line. The second line, we will continue working in our political um, improvement and uh, line and try to find a solution through our forces to, hand, uh, to achieve these demands. So we have two parallel lines. You are speaking to us from Houston. Tell me a bit about the involvement of people outside of Sudan in your organization. Okay, I will talk about my people uh, belong to my, my organization because my organization represented all Sudanese professionals. So it represents all Sudanese people. So not only in U.S. and not only in Europe or any other countries, the whole Sudan is outside Sudan. They now united since this revolution started. Although all obstacles and differences that the last regime tried to blunt it and to spread all kinds of hatreds based on religious, based on type of tribes, based on loyalty to the regime or to another party. This is how the 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 scene was in Sudan before this revolution. Now people outside Sudan, they are only united, uh, aligned to this uh, and support this revolution and uh, are going uh, to, to, to build a new Sudan and they support the new transitional civilian government. So this is a very, a very good privilege for the Sudanese revolution right now for the Sudanese people outside Sudan. It's very impressive. Thank you very much for your perspective on this. Yeah, thank you so much.
And finally, a brief look at the other major international story this week, the terror attacks in Sri Lanka. As the week ended, large areas of the capital city, Colombo, were shut down as police warned of further attacks and continued their search for additional suspects who they believe may be planning more suicide bombings. The Easter Sunday suicide bombings at eight different locations in the capital and elsewhere were well planned. Security officials had detailed intelligence about the plot at least 10 days earlier and again just hours before the first bomb went off. But they failed to act. The country's defense secretary has since resigned. As families gathered to bury the dead, health officials allowed that the task of identifying victims had been difficult and revised the death toll down to between 250 and 260. Authorities in Sri Lanka blame a local extremist Islamist group for the attacks. A video posted online appears to show members of the group pledging allegiance to Islamic State, which has claimed responsibility. More than 70 people have been arrested so far. The attacks in Sri Lanka are now added to a deadly list of the world's worst terror attacks since September 11th. On October 23, 2002, about 50 Chechen rebels took 912 people hostage at the Dubrovka Theater in Moscow. 130 hostages died. On March 11, 2004, a series of bombs exploded on four commuter trains in and around Atocha Station in Madrid. 191 people died. On September 1, 2004, Chechen rebels burst into Beslan School No. 1, taking 1,200 children and adults hostage. More than 330 people were killed, including 186 children. On August 14, 2007, four suicide bombs detonated in the Yazidi towns of Katania and Jazira near Mosul, killing 500 people. In November 2008, 174 people were killed by Pakistani militants who took hostages at the Taj Hotel and opened fire on civilians in South Mumbai. In December 2008, the Lord's Resistance Army abducted and brutally killed 620 civilians and 160 children in northern Congo. On December 16, 2014, the Taliban opened fire on school children and staff in Peshawar, killing 141 people including 132 children. In May 2014, Boko Haram extremists attacked the town of Gambora and Nagala in Nigeria. 300 people were killed. On June 12, 2014, ISIS murdered 1,700 Shia and non-Muslim army recruits in a former palace compound of Saddam Hussein. On July 3, 2016, more than 300 people were killed by ISIL in Baghdad when a bomb exploded in the Shia district of Karada. On October 14, 2017, more than 300 people were killed when explosives were detonated in Mogadishu. On November 24, 2017, extremists opened fire in a mosque in Sinai, Egypt, killing more than 300 people. And that's our program for this week. If you'd like to take another look at any of the interviews in the program or at any of our previous programs, they're all available on our webpage at cpac.ca slash perspective. And now you can also take the program with you. All of our programs are available as a podcast. You can find links to where to listen on our webpage as well. And we'd like to hear from you. If you'd like to comment on anything you see or hear, you can reach us on Twitter and Facebook or by email at perspective at cpac.ca. I'm Allison Smith. Thanks for watching.